If you all could rise uh, for the reading of God's word. Uh, this morning we'll be in Exodus 5. Uh, we'll be looking at all of 5 into 6, 1, uh, but here just reading 5, 1 through 9 and 22 through 6, 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And, And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they make uh, in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle." Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, and that they, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done, done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will, he will drive them out of his land. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Hart Trailer. I'm one of the pastors here, for those of you who don't know me. And as always, it's an honor to get to be up here to preach and to share with y'all. And it's also nice to be back with y'all because, of course, we took last Sunday off in light of the hurricane. And thanks for your patience and understanding as we tried to process that through. And obviously, it ended up being a dud here, but we're obviously, we're not going to complain about that. We're thankful that the Lord spared us. And um, But I, I will admit that I was a little nervous as we started having those discussions last week about are we going to cancel or not, because as you see on the screen, I'm preaching chapters 5 and 6. And so I started thinking, we don't have much wiggle room with our sermon schedule, so if we don't have church next Sunday and Matt doesn't preach, am I going to be preaching 4 through 6? And so I was definitely getting kind of nervous about that, but uh, I appreciated that Matt uh, posted that video and and went ahead and did that pre-recorded message. So just as a reminder, if you missed that or if you missed any other sermons in this series, you can get them on our website or uh, if you miss them in the coming weeks, they're usually on our website. So head over there to check them out. Um, But I'd like to pray first and then we'll get started. So would y'all pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can study it and learn from it, but more importantly, be, be, be transformed by it. Help me to clearly and lovingly communicate your truth this morning. And may your word both convict and calm our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. David Brainerd was born in Connecticut in 1718. 
His parents died when he was young. And like a lot of young 20-year-olds, he didn't know what he wanted to do with his life and tried his hand at different professions, but they all failed. And uh, he was just kind of wandering aimlessly in life. Um, He was very religious. He devoted large chunks of his days to reading the Word and praying. But uh, according to him, he wasn't saved until he was 21 years old. He was praying, um, and the Lord opened his eyes to, to see that. Uh, he was being legalistic about his religious habits, and he was looking to those practices to save him. And he realized, there's nothing I can do to ever be good enough for God to be pleased with me. And that's when he realized how badly he needed God's grace. So after he was saved, he all of a sudden had this moment of clarity where he said, I want to share people. I want to share with people that good news. So he wanted to become a pastor. And so he enrolled at Yale. And his first two years were difficult. He was sick a lot, but he seemed to persevere through that because going into his third year, he was at the top of his class. Um, this is 17, early 1740s. So if you remember your history, this is when the Great Awakening is taking place in America. So George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and guys like that were invited by Yale to come in and preach to the students. And the Lord allowed this, the Great Awakening to sweep through Yale amongst the student body. So a lot of the students got saved and they became very serious and passionate about their faith. So much so that they actually started to accuse their professors of being unbelievers and hypocrites. So as you can imagine, Yale probably didn't appreciate that that was taking place. So Yale issued a warning and they said, if you continue to make these accusations, you're going to be expelled. For whatever reason, Brainerd was not phased by this um, warning. And he actually broke this rule two more times. So after the second time, he was expelled. So he was devastated. Because remember, he's now saved. He's convinced I'm supposed to be a pastor. But he's even more devastated because back then, in order to become a pastor in the colony of Connecticut, you had to graduate from either Yale, Harvard, or a handful of European universities. So for him, this was like the door being shut on his dream. He tried with the next year to get readmitted. He actually became friends with Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards went and personally tried to get Yale to readmit him. I mean, imagine that, being friends with a guy like that. And, but Yale wasn't budging, and they said, nope, we're not going to readmit you. So after about a year, Edwards and some others encouraged Brainerd to become a missionary. So he went and became a missionary to the Indians in that region. And he did that for four years before he passed away from tuberculosis. And that time as a missionary, that, those four years were very difficult. I mean, harsh environments, dangerous environments, lots of lonely nights. But he also was a very sick man, constantly fighting illnesses. And he was also, he, throughout his life, he suffered from severe depression. So when you read his diaries, one day he's on the mountaintop. Just, it was, it's amazing. Everything's going great. Then the next day, he's just in the pit of despair. He's questioning everything. He's questioning God's plans for his life. And I think if we're honest... We can all relate to that. I think we've all had moments where we face trials and afflictions. We find ourselves in that pit and we begin to question God's goodness and his faithfulness and his love. We even question his presence. Is he really there? And in today's text, we find Moses and the Israelites in a similar situation. Chapter four ends on this high note. The Israelites believed Moses. They worshiped God. And then chapter 5 starts out with Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh. And they, they, they tell the words of the Lord to Pharaoh. But what does Pharaoh do? He rejects God's word. Not only does he reject God's words, but he issues his own words. He passes this decree. We're not going to give you straw anymore. We're going to take this task that was already difficult and we're going to make it impossible. 
We didn't read that part of the text, but we see that the Israelites are not able to, to meet the quota that they're still required to meet. And so Pharaoh begins having his taskmasters beat the Israelite foremen for not doing their job. So the foremen go to Pharaoh. They say, Pharaoh, your men are being unjust and cruel to us. Please fix this. And Pharaoh's response is, you are lazy. Get back to work. So as you can imagine, the Israelites are broken. So they go to Moses and say, Moses, this is your fault. You've done this to us. So now Moses is broken, right? He's watching the people he loves suffering. So he goes to God. He says, God, what are you doing? Why have you done this to your people? So chapter 4 ends with the Israelites believing Moses and worshiping God. And then within a chapter, the Israelites are now cursing Moses, and God is, or Moses is doubting God. So what I want us to do during this time is to talk about trials. And we're going to talk about trials while looking at chapter 5. Now, there's three things I want to mention about trials that I think are helpful to have in the back of our minds as we, we go through this text. The first thing is God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all things, and that includes the trials in our lives. So there's never, ever a moment where we face a trial or an affliction that wasn't known by God. He doesn't go, oh, man, where did that come from? I didn't plan for that. That was my bad. He's sovereign over everything, including our trials. Second thing is we face trials for various reasons. Sometimes we face trials because of the sinful choices we make. We, we do something sinful and we have to suffer the consequences of our choices. Sometimes we face trials because of the sinful choices of others. Someone we know or close to does something sinful and stupid and we have to suffer the repercussions of their bad choices. And then sometimes we suffer, from, we suffer in trials that have nothing to do with anyone's sinful choices. Uh, remember the disciples, they asked uh, Jesus about the blind man. Who sinned? Did his parents sin or did this man sin that caused him to be blind? Jesus says, neither of them sinned. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed. And then the third thing about trials is this. Trials are one of the tools that God uses to complete the work he has started in us. God says, I have begun a good work in you and I'm going to bring it to completion and that good work is that he is transforming us into his image. 2 Corinthians 3, 1 Peter 1, he is making us holy as he is holy. Ephesians 5, he is making us imitators just like him. Just as a sculptor uses tools like a hammer and a chisel and turns a block of stone into a beautiful statue, God uses tools like his word and prayer and community with believers to transform us into his image and trials is one of those tools he uses. And I like to think of the trials as the chisel. It's painful. It's not pleasant. But the, the chisel exposes the stone, and then the sculptor says, yeah, I like that piece. Let's leave that there. Over here he chisels. No, I don't like this. Let's keep chiseling. The trials expose the stuff in our lives. And God either goes, yep, that looks like me, or nope, that doesn't. I'm going to keep chiseling away. So as we look at chapter 5, I think we see at least four ways that God uses trials to chisel and to transform us into his image. So the first way, God uses trials to expose the depths of our heart. Or another way you could put it, he uses trials to expose the filth of our heart. Let's look at what the Israelites say to Moses. 
So Pharaoh has just said, no, get back to work, you lazy bums. And then in 21, they come to Moses and Aaron, and they say, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you've put a sword in their hand to kill us. Did y'all listen to what they said? Like, imagine being in Moses' shoes right now. They just accused Moses of making their life miserable. Now, you know, Scripture tells us Moses is one of the most, is the most humble man, and I think this is an example of that because he keeps his mouth shut. But if I'm Moses, I'm going, are you serious? You were slaves before I got involved. I'm pretty sure you stank in, in Pharaoh's sight before I got involved in this situation. Right? This, that is absurd that they accuse Moses of this. I think we see two things here in their accusation that's worth noting. First, they blame Moses and Aaron. They point the finger. They, they give into that temptation to pass the blame onto someone else. Do you find that you do that sometimes? I do. And I think our youngest son got that from me. Um, Judah is our, our four and a half year old. And uh, I think four and a half. Um, and yeah, that sounds right. Um, and he, if you've never met him, imagine the Energizer Bunny and a, a bull in a china shop coming together. He's just, he's 100 miles an hour all the time, running, jumping, just doesn't, he's oblivious to everything. And so I'll be in the kitchen doing something, he'll come running through the kitchen and he'll just crash into a chair. So he gets hurt and he starts crying. He goes, you mean chair? That's your fault. I'm like, dude, the chair was there. Like the chair didn't move in your way, right? But in our flesh, we lash out and we want to lash out at someone else other than ourselves. So they point the finger at Moses. The other thing we see them do is they buy into this grass is greener lie, right? The grass is greener on that side of the fence. Moses, before you got involved, things were good. If we could just get back to how life used to be, things would be fine. It was great back then. That's just the most ridiculous thing. Uh, chapter 2, we're told Moses is in Midian. So he's in another country. For 40 years, he's out of their lives. And what are we told that the Israelites do? They cried and they groaned and God heard their cries. Life stunk before Moses got involved. So this life that they're claiming that you, they used to have that was great? No, it was horrible. But they're buying into this lie. Like, if we could just have that, we'd be content again. And we do the same thing. I mean, look no further than the little devices in your pockets and the social media apps we open and you know, all the studies that are coming out linking depression with social media, right? We scroll through and look at all the pretty things. And if I could just look like that person, if I could just have the money to afford the vacations they go on, I'd be happy. Life would be great at that point. And it's getting worse. I don't know. Have you all heard of um, the phrase Snapchat dysmorphia? Uh, this is from the Washington Post about a month ago. Remember the days when people would bring photos of celebrities to the plastic surgeon's office and ask for Angelina Jolie's lips or Brad Pitt's jawline? That's not the case anymore. Now people want to look like themselves, heavily edited or filtered versions of themselves. Doctors have spotted a trend of people bringing in their own selfies, edited with a smartphone application, and asking to look more like that. This phenomenon is known as Snapchat dysmorphia. I mean, that is ridiculous, y'all. I mean, it's like, if I could just have the smooth skin and the big eyes and the sparkles on my face and the dog ears, I will be happy. I'll be content. That's nonsense, right? But we are bombarded every day with the lies that if I could just have that over there, 
then I'll be satisfied. But when you get on the other side of the fence, what do you find? Another fence with something on that side. And then you find another fence, right? It just keeps going. But the Israelites, they're blaming Moses. And they're convinced that if we could just have this over here, I'll be satisfied. I'll be happy. So that's the Israelites' response. What's Moses' response? Again, it seems like he keeps his mouth shut. I like to imagine that maybe Aaron is there and he's Moses' mouthpiece. So he probably spoke into the situation and probably said the things that I was thinking of. But uh, Moses seems like he's had self-control. And verse 22, he goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Now we're going to look at uh, Moses' response again in a little bit and look at some of the positives about his response. But right now we're going to look at the negative things. Uh, we see um, he's guilty of some sins. He's guilty of discontentment. He's complaining about God's ways. He's guilty of unbelief. He's questioning whether God's going to actually fulfill his promise. He's guilty of impatience. He's frustrated at God's timing. Um, I think we could categorize these sins that he's guilty of as uh, you could summarize them under the lie, God doesn't care about me, right? If God cared about me, he wouldn't let me suffer. I'm dealing with this bad thing because God doesn't love me. I was talking to someone recently and they were sharing how um, they work in sales and they were just saying that, you know, it's, it's a slow season right now. And if you know much about sales, when it's slow, that means there's either little money or no money coming in. This person was just saying, you know, it's, I get really anxious in these moments because, uh, you know, not only am I concerned, am I going to have the money to pay bills, but I start to hear those voices saying, God doesn't love you. Your business is slow because he doesn't care about you. See the people, the, the heathen over there who doesn't believe in the Lord and their business is thriving. See, God doesn't, he's not there. He's not actually in control. When things are going well, when life is going smoothly, it's easy to be blind to the filth in our heart. It's easy to be blind to the bad theology that we believe about God and the, the lies we believe about others. But when God allows us to go through trials, he exposes the depth of our heart. He exposes the filth that's there. He's chiseling away. He's chipping away at it. And just like he uses trials to expose the, the depths and the filth of our heart, he uses trials to expose the ugliness of sin. And that's our second point. He uses trials to expose the depth of sin and our need for rescuing. I've already mentioned this, but you know, before Moses got involved, before Pharaoh passed um, this law that took away the straw, the Israelites were already ens enslaved. They already stank in the sight of Pharaoh. They needed to be rescued. But the moment their life got more difficult, the moment they started getting beaten more, the moment their labor became impossible, they were reminded again how much they were enslaved. It became even more real to them. Now, we're not you know, bound by chains. We're not worried that Pharaoh's going to come in here and tell us to get out and start working and he's going to beat us. But their, Israel's enslavement to Egypt is a visual reminder to us that all a man enters this world enslaved. We all enter this world enslaved to sin and we need to be rescued. And just as Pharaoh was a ruthless and a relentless master to the Israelites, sin is a ruthless and relentless master to man. 
There's the old saying, sin will take you further than you ever want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin doesn't simply just enslave us and keep us right here, like a dog tied to a tree where it's just kind of right in that area. Sin enslaves us, and then it starts marching us to destruction. That's sin's goal. That's its desire. God said to Cain, before he killed Abel, he said, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is to overtake you. And Paul said to the Romans, sin leads to death. Sin's desire is to destroy you. And if you don't do anything about it, it will destroy you. That's why John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But again, when life's going easy, I don't see the sin. I'm not aware of the, the, the sins that so easily entangle me. And so God, who is rich in mercy, lets us face trials. And as we are in the midst of those trials, all of a sudden we start to see the horrors of sin. We start to see the ugliness of it and how devastating it is and how much destruction it brings. It reminds us that we live in a broken world. It reminds us we're sinners and we need to be rescued. So that leads to the question, who does the rescuing? Can man rescue himself? I think most of us in here would give a resounding no. Absolutely not. Man cannot rescue himself. And that's point number three. God uses trials to expose man's insufficiencies. God uses the difficult and the trying moments in our lives to remind us that we're not strong enough. They remind us that we're not able to rescue ourselves. Look at the Israelites. They're enslaved. I'm pretty sure they've attempted to free themselves. There are probably attempts to revolt. There are probably people that tried to run away, but they're enslaved. They have not been able to fix that problem. And based on their response to Moses, it looks like they were looking to Moses to rescue them, right? They get upset with him, and they're basically saying, you were supposed to rescue us, but instead you just made our lives more worse. They were looking to Moses to rescue them. <laughs> but remember chapters 3 and 4, Moses is like, I'm not the man for the job. He says to God multiple times, he gives all these excuses of why he is not the right man for the job. Remember at one point he says, who am I to the Lord? He's basically saying like, who am I that you think that I'm worthy to do this? And God's response isn't, well, here, let me rattle off your, your resume to you and remind you that you're good. God's response was, let me tell you about who I am. The point is, God uses trials to remind us that we are not able to save ourselves. We cannot rescue ourselves. So as we endure the storms of life and those intense moments of suffering, in those moments we realize, I can't do anything about this. Like, as I see my loved ones suffering and dying, I can't do anything about it. As I watch my marriage fall apart, and I've attempted every way to try to fix our marriage, and I realize there's nothing I can do to fix this marriage. As I get rejected for the thousandth time in a job interview, and I'm seeing the bills pile up, and we don't have the money, and I, there's no way I can fix my financial situation, God uses those to remind you, yeah, you are not able. Man does not have the power to rescue himself. We realize that we need something bigger than us. We need something divine. We need a God. And so point four is this. God uses trials to expose the God we serve. When Moses and Aaron approached Pharaoh, they said, thus says the Lord, 
They proclaim God's words to him. And Pharaoh's response is, thus says Pharaoh. Pharaoh was saying, I'm more powerful than the Lord, and therefore you need to continue serving me. And then in verse 15, the foremen of Israel were told they come and they cried to who? To Pharaoh. And that word cry, that's the same word that's used earlier where it talks about the Israelites crying out and groaning. And when God heard their cries, it's the same word there. But yet here, they cried out to Pharaoh. And then listen to this. Listen for the word servants. Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks and behold, your servants are beaten. They use the word servants three times. And who are they saying they are servants to? They're calling them Pharaoh's servants, saying, Pharaoh, we're your servants. Why are you treating us this way? God uses this trial to expose that the Israelites turn to Pharaoh for rescue, and they're turning to Pharaoh as their God. And what does Pharaoh say? What does their little G God say to them? He says, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice. But go and work. No straw will be given to you you must still deliver the same number of bricks. So the four men of Israel left and saw the trouble they were in. The God they turned to, they poured their hearts out to, responds with more works. He says, get out there, you lazy bums, and work. But what do we see um, Moses do? We see that Moses turns to the Lord. Verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord. This trial exposes that Moses is serving the Lord. That is his God. So that's a good question for us to ask. In times of trouble, in the midst of the trials and sufferings, who do I turn to? And then we see Moses, he pours out the filth of his heart. Right? I mean, bad theology, lies about God. He pours it all out to God. And I think there's a part of us that I'll go, Ooh, that's not a very honorable thing to do. You start questioning Moses like, oh, maybe you're not a good Christian, right? Because the reason why is because we've all heard those lies like, oh, good Christians never doubt. Good Christians never have those questions, right? So when we start to feel them, when we go through those trials and we start realizing I'm doubting and I've got these fears, we kind of just bury them down because I'm not supposed to have them. But it's actually a good thing that Moses is pouring them out to God. And the reason why is who better to pour out this filth to than to the one who has promised, I'm going to give you a new heart. We're saying, God, here's my heart. It's filthy. It's wicked. But I'm going to give it to you because I know that you ultimately can transform it and make it into something good. We see others do this throughout Scripture. The psalmist, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cry out to you day by day, and you don't answer me. Some of the prophets like Jeremiah, they cry out to God and they, they put up these questions and these doubts. Our call to worship this morning was from Lamentations, and that's a book full of poems that are doing just this. They're expressing these doubts. God, why are you afflicting me? Why are you allowing these things to happen to us? Are you good? Are you there? The thing is, God isn't scared of our filth. He isn't intimidated by our questions, and he's not diminished by our doubts. And unlike Pharaoh, who responded to the Israelites cruelly and demanded more works, God responds as a compassionate 
and a loving father. In chapter 6, we get God's response to Moses. And basically what God does is he gives these seven I wills. So they're referred to as the seven I wills. But these are promises that can basically be summed up as four basic promises. God says to Moses, I will liberate you. I'm going to free you from your slavery. I will redeem you. Through mighty acts of judgment, your debt will be paid. I will take you to be my people. That word take could be translated as adopt. So God is saying, I'm going to adopt you as my people. I'm going to be your father and you will be my children. And then four, he says, I will give you the land I swore to your fathers for your possession. What does that sound like? It sounds like the gospel to me. Right? Moses goes and he pours out his filth to God and God's response is this compassionate reminder of the gospel. And then God is going to later in the chapter tell Moses, go and tell these words to my people. So Moses is instructed, go and give the gospel to the Israelites. Just like God speaks the gospel here to Moses and the Israelites, he speaks it to us. Through his son Jesus, he has liberated us, he has redeemed us, he has adopted us, and we will one day dwell with him in the land of the living forever. In a little bit, we're going to take communion, and then after communion, we'll sing the closing song. It's the song, Though You Slay Me. Um, and if you're familiar with that, there's a, a video that goes along with that song where um, at some point in the song, they play instrumentally, and they play on top of the music a, a, a clip from a John Piper sermon. And I wanted to read that quote because I think it's really uh, applicable, but it's also really encouraging. So this is from John Piper. He says, Not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. But don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you've got cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes her out, don't say that's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, do not lose heart. But take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and cared for. I love that last part. Preach these truths to yourself daily. He's saying preach the gospel to yourself daily. Um, Martin Luther said that sometimes Satan's voice would get so loud in his head that he would have to go off somewhere private and he would literally audibly shout God's word out loud so he could hear God's word to drown out Satan's voice. In the midst of trials, we need to proclaim the gospel to ourselves. The gospel is that we have been liberated, we have been redeemed, we have been adopted, and we will dwell with God forever. God is doing this good work in us, and that good work is to transform us into his image. And he uses trials 
um, like a tool to transform us. They're painful, they're uncomfortable, they're miserable, they're inconvenient, they're all the negative words you can think of, but they serve a purpose. Our afflictions are meaningful, like Piper said. Don't waste your trials. God is using the trials and the afflictions to transform you into his image, which is a good and awesome thing. But not only does God use the afflictions for our good, he also uses the afflictions that we go through for the good of others. Um, I talked about David Brainerd at the beginning, and I mentioned that he'd only served as a missionary for four years before he passed away. And in terms of, quote-unquote, success as a missionary, he didn't have a ton of success. He's not like one of those guys, like, oh, he's one of the giants of the mission world. Um, so some people might chalk him up that as an uneventful life. But I'm sure the Indians that the Lord saved through the work of Brainerd would disagree that it was an uneventful life. And future missionaries, men like William Carey, David Livingston, Andrew Murray, Jim Elliott, they would disagree with that statement. They actually looked to Brainerd as a hero. He was someone who inspired them. Some of them went into the mission work because of Brainerd. See, after Brainerd died, Jonathan Edwards took all of his journals and diaries and he compiled it into a biography. And he began to distribute this biography. Men like John Wesley, the famous hymn writer, said, every preacher should read about the life of David Brainerd. This biography that was written by Edwards is actually considered Edwards' uh, bestseller. It's actually still in print today. It's never gone out of print. That's how much it's in demand. So, so how could a man who had only been a Christian for eight years and only been a missionary for four of those years, who didn't really have quote-unquote success, who was sick all the time, he suffered from severe depression. How did a man like that have such a profound impact on so many? John Piper put it this way. He said, Brainerd's life is a vivid, powerful testimony to the truth that God can and does use weak, sick, discouraged, beat-down, lonely, struggling saints who cry to him day and night to accomplish amazing things for his glory. God doesn't need us to be Apostle Paul. He doesn't need us to be a George Whitfield or a Billy Graham. What he wants from us is to go to him in the good times and the bad and to be crying out to him. And God says, I will use that. And even maybe in our life, it feels like it was just a life full of trials. Who knows how God could use your life afterwards to impact other people. Brainerd turned to God. We saw Moses turn to God. And some of us here, have turned to God. We've, we've made that confession. We, we believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord. So if you are one of those, if you are a saint, then please know that the table, the communion tables are open to you. And I want to encourage you as you approach the communion tables to thank the Lord for the trials. I know that feels odd, but thank him for the trials because the trials in our lives are evidence that he's working in us that he's fulfilling his promise in our lives, that he's transforming us. So thank him for the trials and also pray and ask God, through the power of your spirit, help me not waste the trials and the afflictions that I face. Let them actually be meaningful so, and meaningful in my life and meaningful to the people that I come into contact with and continue to preach the gospel to yourself. We are liberated 
We are redeemed. We are adopted. And one day we will dwell with God in a good and an eternal land. Now, some of you have not made that confession. So if you are not a believer, then please know that the table is not open to you. This is a family meal meant for God's children to enjoy. But I would ask that during this time of communion that you would reflect on the words you've heard this morning. And I want to encourage you to have the, 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 the difficult conversation. Ask yourself, all right, if I don't turn to the Lord in the midst of trials, who do I turn to? What, do I turn to myself? Do I turn to my intellect and my, my, my strength? Do I turn to other people? Do I turn to money? Do I turn to material things? What do I turn to in those times when life is really difficult? Jesus says, cast your cares and your burdens on me and I will give you rest. Jesus is saying, pour your filth on me because I can bear that weight. He's saying, you were not meant to bear that weight. Nothing else can bear that weight, but I can. So who are you pouring your filth onto? Because it's not going to hold up. So what are you going to do when your money or that person in your life or you yourself can no longer bear that weight and you, you find it crashing down? What are you going to do in that moment? Let's go to prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Father, that despite our sin, despite our rebellion against you, you sent your son, Jesus, and through him in his sinless life and death, burial, and resurrection, you have liberated us, redeemed us, adopted us, and you're preparing a good place for us. Help us remember this good news, both in the good times and the difficult times. And through the power of your spirit, help us proclaim this news to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.